Let's open, though, our Bibles to Romans chapter 16 as we near the conclusion of this glorious gift that the Lord has given us in the epistle to the Romans from our brother, the Apostle Paul. I hope over this last couple years as we have spent, uh, it'll, be, it'll be right at 100 Sundays uh, in this book when we finish uh, in two weeks. And uh, I hope you, your love for uh, the Apostle Paul has grown deep in your heart, that you, uh, you see him as your brother. And um, more than that, I hope that your love for God has grown in your heart and your gratefulness for, for what it is that God has done and does for us. We are now in verse 21. Uh, of Romans chapter 16. Let's stand together in honor of the word of God. And hear now the word of the Lord from Romans chapter 16, verse 21. Timothy, our fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who's host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus greet you. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Thank you for this good, pure, perfect gift that you have given to us. May our love for your word grow this morning. May our love for you grow this morning. May our transformation by your spirit into the likeness of Christ progress this morning. Pray, God, that you would give us ears to hear, give us receptive hearts. In your kindness to us, Lord, reveal sin hidden in our hearts that we might turn from it, that we might, with the power of your spirit, put sin to death in our lives and live righteous lives that honor you. Pray, God, by your spirit, you'd lift our eyes to see the Lord Jesus Christ and him crucified, risen and reigning, that our hearts would be filled with hope and humility and joy and peace in these dark times in which we live. I pray for myself as I proclaim your word, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Just real quick, I realized I don't have this anywhere in my notes as I was reading this uh, passage, but if you were reading along with the ESV, you see that um, in, in your bulletin it says that we're preaching this morning Romans chapter 16, verses 21 through 24, and then we stopped at verse 23, and if you're reading uh, most translations other than the King James, you don't even have a 24. And what do we do with that? Well, 24 is uh, the repeated statement that we see at the end of verse 20. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Uh, And so the oldest manuscripts, your translation probably has a note there somewhere that says the oldest uh, manuscripts, the earliest manuscripts do not have verse 24. At some point, someone just sort of added that into the text, and the older the manuscripts we found, the more we found, well, that wasn't in there originally. And honestly, you look at it, It's the exact statement he made like two sentences earlier. Uh, And so now, it's a wholly appropriate statement to make at any point. 
The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. To that we say amen. Uh, but that's why you don't see that. If you have a King James translation, you do see that because the King James uh, was translated long before we found any of these older manuscripts. Uh, and so the manuscripts they were working with had that in there. Uh, and so I just wanted to make mention of that. I realized as I was reading it, that question might pop up in your mind. But in Romans chapter 16, as Paul has been closing out this letter, he's been closing out with a list of greetings. In verses 1 through 16, he sends his love and greetings to the saints in Rome. He, he calls on them to love one another and to welcome one another with visible, tangible signs of family affection. And then in verses 17 through 20, he interrupts himself. It's as if this thought comes in from the side, and Paul begins to issue warnings. There is a real threat to this unity in the church. There is a real threat to this, this familial love in the church. We have a real enemy. We are in a real war. Our enemy hates us. Our enemy wants to kill us. He works, Paul reveals, Paul reveals here, by bringing in deceptive false teachers, these smooth-talking, charismatic, likable people who distort and pervert the truth of Scripture. These people, Paul says, are to be marked and avoided. We ought to have nothing to do with them. We ought to identify them and separate from them. Our enemy also works by luring us into becoming acclimated to sin. We are dulled. We are seduced by the godless culture in which we live. And so, since we are in a war, Paul warns us, be wise as to what is good, be innocent as to what is evil. And then he gives us a strong word of encouragement that we saw last week. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. This battle, this bloody war that we are engaged in in this earth is fought from a place of victory. Christ has won. And so then, having issued this final warning to the Roman Christians, Paul returns now to his greetings in the verses that we looked at this morning. This time he is sending greetings from those who are with him in Corinth as he writes this. It's, it's as if Paul is writing this letter to the Christians in Rome, and he's surrounded by fellow workers. He is surrounded by friends who now are saying to Paul, well, tell them I said hello to Tell them, tell them I love them. I haven't met them, but I love them. Send my, my greetings to them. So just a, just a couple of weeks ago, we, we went through this long list of names in the first 16 verses of Romans chapter 16. We saw Paul's love for the saints. We saw his love for the church. We, we saw our call to love Christ's church, which is really our family. And so we're going to look at the individuals Paul lists here, but we're not going to spend our whole time just going through a list of names again. I want to go a little bit different direction after we look at these individuals briefly and spend our time as we are coming to the conclusion of Romans, just talking about the treasure of Scripture that we have been given, the treasure that God has given to us, the great gift God has given to us in Scripture itself. But first, let's look at these greetings from Paul's companions that are there with him as he writes this letter, verse 21. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. Now, Timothy may have been closer to Paul than any person on the planet. Paul poured countless hours 
into discipling this young man. In, in Philippians 2, verse 20, Paul says, I, of Timothy, I have no one like him. In verse 22, he says to, he says to them, you, you know Timothy's proven worth. I was a son with a father. He has served with me in the gospel. In verse 22 of Philippians 2. Timothy's a son to Paul. Paul loves him. They are exceedingly close. And Timothy is a prime example of the power of godly parenting. Timothy's father appears to have been largely absent. Now, perhaps that was physically absent or perhaps that was just spiritually absent. Commentators speculate on what the situation is with, with his father. He doesn't appear to have played much of a role in Timothy's becoming a man, much, much less Timothy's becoming a godly man. But Timothy had something going for him. In fact, he had two things going for him. He had a mother and he had a grandmother. Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, As for you, continue in what you have learned have been, and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. He tells him in, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. These two women, Lois and Eunice, poured their lives into Timothy, and he did not depart from their instruction. The, the work of God's grace in our lives is not genetic. It is supernatural. But in our families, God has given us a role to play in that process. A vital role, an important role. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Some translations say the nurture and admonition of the Lord. This involves more than just dragging them with you to church on a Sunday morning. I want to be very clear. It doesn't involve less than that. It just involves more than that. We often hear these statements, well, taking your kids to church won't make them a Christian. True. People say, going to, going to church doesn't make you a Christian. True. But if obeying Christ's command to not forsake our assembling together on the Lord's day, if that doesn't save us, we can be very sure that disobeying his command is not going to save us either. People usually make that statement to go like, I'm just fine. I don't even need it. No, listen. Disobedience is not the answer to whatever the problem is. There's hypocrites in church. Great. You're one too. Your disobedience to Christ's command is not going to improve the situation for your kids in your life. So, of course, we must prioritize corporate worship. Every one of us. Each one of us must prioritize corporate worship as the church gathers on the Lord's Day. It is not an add-on in the life of the believer when it is convenient and we don't have any other things to do, or the weather's not nice, or it's not a holiday weekend. It is central to the life of the Christian. It is the most important, precious centerpiece of our week. It is, it is the, the best couple hours 
of the week. We devalue it to our own peril. And parents, we devalue it to our kids' peril. But it's more than that. It's more than just coming to church. It's more than just dragging our kids to church. It's, it's all of life. It's, it's consistency in the home. It's the kids seeing that who you are on Sunday morning at church is actually who you are the whole rest of the week. This is where the battle is won or lost. It's in the home. It's not in the couple hours we spend together on Sunday morning, as vital and as important as that is. Paul says, Timothy learned, and Timothy firmly believed. Why? Because he was taught. Because he was taught. What, what was he taught? Well, Paul tells us, the sacred writings. Lois and Eunice consistently, day by day, as Timothy grew up, taught him the Bible. And their faith, Paul says, now dwells within Timothy. He didn't become a teenager and abandon it. Their faith was passed down successfully to him. And I would just say, parents, how seriously are you taking this sacred responsibility? Why do kids seem to leave the church once they become teenagers or hit college age? That's an epidemic across the evangelical church. Churches are all wringing their hands, figuring out how do we not lose our kids? Because kids become teenagers and they don't like church anymore. They get college age and they don't go anymore. Often, they, many of the kids come out from our churches in this community, they get to college and they completely abandon their faith and in fact take up arms against it. Part of the answer to that does have to do with the church. It actually does have to do with the church. Did we teach them? Did we instruct them? Were they getting anything solid that they could stand on or sink their teeth into? Did we teach them that the church wasn't for them from the very moment of their, their youngest lives? They come in the door, mom and dad go one direction to church, that's for the old people. We go this direction where the clowns are. Or whatever they, I don't know if they have clowns. Puppets. Did, did we teach them? This isn't for you. This is for old people. This is for older people. Did we, did we teach them that they needed to be catered to and entertained at every turn? Well, obviously, they can't sit through a sermon. Jason is really boring. Obviously, they need youth groups with lots of gimmicks. The more gimmicks, the better. That's what really draws them in. And then we'll sneak in a couple Bible verses at some point in this. Old people don't understand them. They need... Their steady diet needs to be their peers. Just being taught the Bible isn't very fun. We need other things. They have short little attention spans. They can't concentrate. Certainly, I mean, a high school could never sit down and learn the Bible. That's so much more complex than trigonometry. No, we expect a lot out of them in school, and we expect nothing out of them in the church. And we teach them Nothing. And so, yes, the church has played a role in young people not being discipled, not even at church, not being taught, not even at church, and ultimately being sent out into the world with nothing to stand on at all except a couple of Bible stories that they will quickly be taught by the smartest people they've ever met are not to be believed. 
There's no solid ground beneath their feet. No answer to be given for the faith that they were raised with. And they come to look on their heritage and their church with contempt. So yes, the church plays a role, but friends, the central issue is this. What do they see at home? The difference maker. And what happens with kids as they get older is, what did they see at home? Were they discipled at home? Or were they not? What was, was church the place? It's their responsibility to teach the kids. That's why we got Sunday schools and other people. They'll do it. No, were they d- discipled at home? Are, are, are they being trained to, to make everything about them? To make it all about them and how they feel and what they want and what their preferences are. How how, how do they hear you talk about the church? Were they fed a steady diet at home of your complaints about Christ's church and Christ's people? How do they hear you talk about the pastor? Well, I didn't like today's sermon. I don't know what he's got going on in the church. Oh, your kids are listening. And they're being poisoned. How are you counteracting the world and the flesh and the devil who wants to murder their souls? Are you investing as much time discipling your kids as the schools are investing discipling your kids? It's a big chunk of time. They're, they're in school so much that you will need to devote every waking hour to intentional discipleship of your children. The, the schools, by the way, We've got some good public schools around here if we are comparing them to the other schools. There are wicked things coming into all of our schools in these areas. But even at their best, they're godless places. There are places where the teachers are not allowed to teach them. Christians, what do we believe? We believe two plus two equals four because there's a God who made all things who is unchanging, who has made an orderly creation such that if you add two and two together, it will always equal four. Now, we don't always think through it that way. (laughs) I need two of these and two of these. Okay, I got four things, and we don't think that whole thing. But that's what's driving our thinking. That is not what they will be taught in school. They're being taught a godless version of every topic that they are being taught, even if they're being taught by Christian teachers because their hands are tied and they're not allowed to teach that. Are you counteracting the discipleship your kids are receiving from their classmates and from their teachers and from their godless curriculum? That's an uncomfortable conversation (laughs) to have, but it's one we better consider. God is sovereign. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Godly parenting does not guarantee that your children are going to be saved. But we have every reason to believe. We have every reason to trust that God's process for raising children, that God's process for families will result in generational blessing and faithfulness. We have every reason to expect that. That that same faith that dwelt first, Paul says, in Timothy's grandmother and then his mother, Paul says, that same faith is yours. It was their faith. And it went from mother to daughter to son. That is how it works. But it doesn't happen genetically. 
It doesn't happen by accident. It doesn't happen because you live in the same house. It's taught. It's discipled. It's reaffirmed day in and day out. And maybe right now, you're feeling a bit of a burden. You're feeling a bit of condemnation. I'm not living up to this. Right now, you're weighing the options in your mind. I can either lean into this feeling of conviction, or I can just get mad at that guy standing up there, and I'm leaning that direction. Let me just say this to you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Start today. Start today. You can, you can fire your inner lawyer on this topic right now and say, I'm going to start today. I'm going to start right now going forward. Start with your kids right now. Maybe you need to... to Sit down and confess to them, we've not been faithful in this area. Let me tell you, I wasn't raised understanding what family worship was. I was raised thinking theology and doctrine were for people who didn't love the Lord. There was a time, not long ago, where we had to sit down with our kids and say, we wish we could have done it all different. We weren't as faithful in discipling you as... We should have been humble yourself. It's okay. None of us are perfect. Start today. Start with your kids. Start with your grandkids. You, 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 you are vital in their life. Paul, Paul points at Timothy's grandma and says, her faith is your faith now. Start, start with them. Start with these precious kids that the Lord has given to us here at Maple Grove. Pour into their lives. Make them feel loved beyond measure and let them know that you love them in the Lord. And you be a part of their discipleship and you get to share in the joy of watching them grow in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It's not too late. It's not too late, and you have a role to play. If you can hear my voice, you have a role to play in this. What a glorious calling. What better calling. What a wonderful calling. He goes on. Timothy. All right, let me commend to you two things before I move on. To that end. Family Worship Guide. It's out there on the information table. Brad Kelly has put this together. It is wonderful. You might be thinking, how do I even do this? Grab one of these. You have no idea what 15 minutes a day might do in eternity in your kids' lives. You don't have to start with like, I guess I got to do like an hour and a half Bible study each night with my kids. That's what you're saying. No, don't do that. Grab one of these. Start with this. Your family will be blessed. You will benefit from it. There's also a conference coming up on families, Michiana Reforming Families Conference. Um, they've got a, at least one really good speaker at this conference. Um, prob probably the greatest speaker standing in this pulpit right now. Not the greatest in any other room, but th just this one. Uh, no, um, there's information. These little orange sheets are out there. Again, there are, there are resources out there that can be of help to us in these areas. Okay, I got to move quick because I talked too long. 
He goes on, verse 21. Timothy greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who's host to me, and the whole church greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus greet you. Just briefly looking at these men, Lucius, Jason, Sosipater, Paul says they're his kinsmen. These are men who are companions of the Apostle Paul. They're there with him in Corinth as he writes this letter. They are likely traveling with him to deliver the gift from the Gentile churches to the impoverished saints in Jerusalem. Gaius, in verse 23, would be a wealthy Christian. He, he has the means to host not only Paul, but Paul says he hosts the church in his home as well. He names these other men, Tertius and Cordus. They are likely slaves who've been converted. We, we, we believe that. They're probably Gaius' slaves since they're there. We, we know that they're slaves because their names aren't really names. Their names are numbers. Tertius and Cordus. In Roman culture, the top servant, the servant above all the other servants, the one in, entrusted with the whole household. Think, think Joseph in Potiphar's house. The first among all in, in, in this place of responsibility was given this name Primus. It meant the first man, the first. After him, the next in line was Secundus, the second man. And then comes Tertius. Tertius means third. Then comes Quartus. Quartus means fourth. So as Paul's writing this letter to the Romans, he's surrounded by friends, brothers in Christ, companions, fellow workers for the gospel. Two of these men that send their greetings are slaves. Unless we think that they occupy a lower place in the church, what does Paul call Quartus there? Our brother. Our brother Quartus. So here's Paul. You've got Timothy, this young preacher, this, this dear son to Paul. You've got these kinsmen of Paul who are likely traveling with him. You've got the, this wealthy Christian who, who owns the house Paul's staying in. The church meets in his house. You've got his servants who are there. You've even got Erastus who is the city treasurer of Corinth. Rich men, poor men, masters, slaves, high-ranking city officials, Jews, Gentiles, young and old, and all of them are brothers. How beautiful is Christ's church? What else is like Christ's church? All of them brothers. Psalm 133 verse 1 comes to mind. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. What a beautiful thing this is. Well, there, there is much we could say about love and unity in the church. A couple weeks ago, we spent the whole morning talking about that. We have been given profound, supernatural, eternal unity with one another. We who are in Christ have been united to Christ and united in Christ to one another. And we are called to live that out in tangible, practical ways. Intentional, self-sacrificial, actions of family affection. And so we're not going to cover all that ground again today just because we got another list of names. But I want to turn aside for a few moments as we are nearing the conclusion of this glorious letter and consider the gift of Scripture. Because Paul makes this strange, well, Tertius makes a strange statement in verse 22. 
I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Now we have been talking for 98 sermons about Paul, the author of the letter to the Romans. And now at the very end, we got this guy who says, I, who wrote this letter, send my greetings. Well, what's going on? Paul is the author of the letter. Paul is the author of all of Paul's letters. But he didn't write them with his own hand. He dictated them. He used an amanuensis, a secretary who wrote down what he said. And so Tertius, this servant in the house of Gaius, wrote down what Paul said word for word. And and think of this. As as God, the Holy Spirit, breathed out his word through the Apostle Paul, that the Apostle Paul spoke, as God was overseeing that process, he was overseeing Tertius' hearing and writing of the words of Paul, such that the words Paul spoke, the words Tertius wrote, were nothing less than the very word of God. So whether it's Paul dictating a letter to Tertius, whether it's Luke who says, I did research and I interviewed eyewitnesses to write an orderly account of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and the book of Acts. Timothy even makes this statement, it seemed good to do. God overseeing that process, whether it's Mark writing his gospel based on the teaching of the Apostle Peter, whether it is the Apostle John's apocalyptic vision in the book of Revelation, whether it's the psalmist David pouring out his heart in anguish or fear or frustration or joy or worship, no matter who the human authors were or what their process was, the Holy Spirit of God so oversaw the process of inspiration and writing that they wrote down the very words of God without error, infallible, inerrant, perfect, authoritative for all people in all generations. That is how it works with all Scripture. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. just want to talk in our final minutes here about some of the attributes of Scripture, what it means that, that God has breathed out this word. The first thing we see is the authority of Scripture. Because the Scripture is the word of God, it has the authority of God. We must then be not only hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Because in the Bible, God is directly speaking to us. That means whatever the scripture says, whatever the Bible says, that is what God says. When we disobey the Bible, we are disobeying God himself. When the Bible speaks on a subject, God is the one speaking on the subject. There's a a thing that people like to do these days where they'll try to separate out like, okay, yeah, Paul said some things about this topic that were pretty clear, but we don't read those in the red letters when Jesus spoke. No, when, when Paul speaks, God speaks in Scripture. There's no separating it out. It is why if we're gonna have red letter Bibles, we ought to just make every letter read in the entire book. Those red letters are not more weighty than anything else in the Scripture. 
It means that the Bible is also the supreme authority on any topic it addresses. So the Christian doesn't have the option of ignoring parts of it, of obeying selectively some parts and not other parts. As Jesus said, we live not by physical bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So one of the things false teachers love to do is try to separate God from his word. It's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not the Father, Son, and Holy Scripture. You'll hear people say that. They're saying that when someone is pointing out their false teaching. And that's how they respond to it. As if we could separate God and his word in that way. The truth is, submission to the Lord necessarily leads to submission to his word. To, to ignore the scripture is nothing less than open rebellion against God. God has authority to rule over all of his creation. He certainly has authority to rule over us. He certainly has authority to rule over his own church. And so the scripture is the final ultimate authority for life and godliness. It's the authority that directs and empowers the church. God's word has authority over every single person alive today, whether they acknowledge it or not. It is true. Next, it flows from the inspiration of Scripture that God breathed out Scripture, the necessity of Scripture. Paul has told us all the way back in the beginning of Romans, Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now God has revealed himself in creation. Paul tells us that in Romans chapter 1, such that all men are without excuse. All men know. All men have to do is open up their eyes and look at the world around them and they know that there is a creator and they know that they are responsible to him. God even reveals himself in our human conscience. We are built, we are created in the image of God. We cannot escape that. But there is no gospel to save us in God's general revelation. And that revelation that just looks at the world. And that revelation that just has a conscience that tells us right from wrong. Salvation and the only Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, are revealed only in the Scripture. In special revelation. Apart from His Word, we don't know Him. Apart from His Word, we don't know His will. We don't know what pleases Him. We don't know how to be reconciled to Him. And so the revelation of God in the world is enough to condemn us, but the revelation of God in the word is enough to save us. There's no salvation without it. We must have special revelation. We must have specific words from God that reveal him to us, that reveal his will, that reveal his plan, that reveal his purposes, that, that reveal his, his way of salvation. <coughs> Next, we, if Scripture is inspired by God, then it is sufficient. Scripture alone is sufficient for our salvation. Nothing else is needed. In fact, nothing else can be added to it. No human tradition, no philosophy, no new revelation. We don't need gimmicks. We don't need extra so-called words from the Lord. We so easily forget the sufficiency of 
Scripture. We say all the right things about the Bible. But when life gets hard, or it just gets boring, we look for new words. We look for new revelations. We look for new experiences that will make us feel closer to God. And we begin to look outside of the Bible for answers to all kinds of questions. How, how, do we, how do we deal with the social justice issues in our world? Well, the Bible is not going to answer that for us. We've got to look elsewhere. The Bible tells us about it, but no, no, no we need more. We need these theories to come in. We, we begin to, to, to look outside of Scripture and what it tells us about our ethnic relations one to another. Well, that's not enough for us. We need to look out here. We need to look to these theories and these understandings that, that people have developed through the years. Even when it comes to church practices, we, we don't think the Bible is enough. We've got to look to the business world and how they do things. We've got to look to the entertainment world and how they do things. What we are doing subtly and often unintentionally is undermining the sufficiency of Scripture. It's not enough. We need these other things. 2 Timothy 3.17 that we just read a couple minutes ago says, God has given us scripture that the man of God may be complete. Equipped for every good work. Complete. It's enough for every good work. God has given us all that we need for life and godliness in his all-sufficient word. This Bible that we have been given is more than enough for the people of God to live their lives for the glory of God. It's perhaps the sufficiency of Scripture that is most under attack in the evangelical world today. And we see the perspicuity of Scripture. If, if God has been so kind as to speak to us, to give us his word, if he has revealed himself to us, if he has revealed his will to us, if, if he has breathed out this all-sufficient, vital message that every human being needs, then we can be sure he did it in a way we can understand. That's what this word perspicuity means. It means it's clear. The essential doctrines of salvation are clear. Everyone can understand them. And it's not just that we can understand them, but the Holy Spirit, who's the primary author of Scripture, enlightens our understanding and applies these truths to our hearts. And so we see the efficacy of Scripture. It's effective. The, the power of the Word of God is the power of God Himself. Psalm 33, verse 6 says, the word of the Lord, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. God speaks, and all creation comes into being. So that's why Paul says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. The, the word of God is efficacious. It, it accomplishes that which it sets out to accomplish. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 4, Paul says, The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy, destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Take every thought captive to obey Christ. Such is the power of Scripture. It accomplishes 
all of God's good purposes. Whether in salvation or whether in the defeat of God's enemy, God's word goes forth and accomplishes that which he intends to accomplish by it. It is effective. This is why we hold to that great Reformation battle cry, sola scriptura. Scripture alone. There's no human authority competent to judge the word of God. There's no finite fallen reason that can judge God's perfect word. We stand under the authority of the God-breathed word in order to hear and to do the will of God. The, The whole of scripture reveals to us The Lord Jesus Christ, the one who saves us from our sins, the only Savior, the one who rules and reigns over all creation, the one who is even now putting his enemies under his feet, the one who is the word of God made flesh, who lived and died and rose again, whoever lives to intercede on our behalf, the one who will surely return for us and we will dwell with him for eternity. So we give thanks to God for the whole Bible, for all of it. There's not one word, there's not one sentence, there's not one passage that we ought to be ashamed of or embarrassed of. One pastor, uh, Doug Wilson, says we ought to have no problem passages. There's nothing we're embarrassed about in this book. We love it, we cherish it. We give thanks to God for this glorious letter, Romans. What a gift. Written down by Tertius. From the mouth of Paul, who spoke as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit. This this letter that tells us in chapter 1, verse 18, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who in their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It tells us in chapter 2, verse 5, that Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This letter that does not shrink away from telling us the bad news of our rebellion and our condemnation, but then it tells us in chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If God is for us, who could be against us? We're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This letter that tells us in chapter 10 verse 13 that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Imagine Tertius, a slave, writing these words as the Apostle Paul speaks them. Imagine the joy that must have thrilled his heart to to hear Paul speak these words to him. Maybe Paul even had to repeat it like you got to write it. Maybe Tertius at moments was so overcome with this glorious gospel I I picture this manuscript being covered in tears. As Tertius wrote, joyful, thankful tears. As this slave, who's been made by God an inheriting son, wrote Paul's words. As this dead man, 
who's been made by God to be alive. This rebel who had now come home to his father wrote these words. I I just pictured the overwhelming emotion as he both heard and wrote these words. And brothers and sisters, that's us. Slaves. These are the very images that Paul has used for us in this letter. Slaves bound in sin. Cemented into sin with our father Adam. Unwilling, unable, undesirous to get out of our condemnation. Reveling in our enmity towards God. Dead men. Incapable. Incapable of pleasing God. Incapable of generating faith. Incapable of repentance. Incapable of of doing anything but just being dead. Rebels at war with God and he at war with us. And yet God broke us free. God broke us free from that cemented in connection to Adam and and his sin and in condemnation. He united us to Christ in his victorious righteousness. He made us to live so that we could respond to this gospel, so that we could repent of our sin and trust in him and live for him, empowered by his Holy Spirit, Lives that actually please Him and glorify Him and honor Him. He made us rebels to have our eyes open to the war that we were in the midst of with God and instead to be so fully reconciled to us that our Father, this righteous judge of all the universe, rejoices over us with singing. Paul has shown us that we were enslaved. He has shown us that we were treasonous rebels. He has shown us that we were dead, but he has made us alive. Praise God for the gospel. This gospel that saves. Praise God for the scriptures which reveal God to us and reveal his gospel to us. And oh, that we would practically live out what we say we believe about the scriptures. My prayer is that we would be a people of the scriptures. Not just to have a solid doctrinal statement about the scriptures. That we would see God as lovely. That we would want to know him more fully. That we would love his word. Because in the scriptures we get God himself. We would get to know the God who has saved us and redeemed us and called called us to himself and My hope for us is that we would want to be a people who know God. That that we would see that that it's in his word that we get to know him. He has given us this precious, good gift that it would drive us to the scriptures. It would drive us there in those mountaintop moments where we feel it. I mean, I've had moments in my life where I like, constantly pulling my phone out, even in Walmart, because I'm like, I'm in line for like six minutes here. I could hear from God. And I just want to read the scripture, but that's not where I live my life most of the time. 
But you understand, if we believe what we say we believe about this, then it's worth plotting. It's worth getting up every day and putting one foot in front of the other and saying, I don't feel like it right now. But this is the very word of God given to me, and it is worth my taking up and reading even when I don't feel spiritual, even when I don't feel like it. It's my prayer that that what we know to be true about God would drive us to his word, that our confidence in God would grow, our love for God would grow, and our passion for our God and his kingdom would grow. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Lord, what a gift, what a treasure you have given to us. And I confess for myself that I don't treasure it enough. Lord, I wish I didn't ever go through valleys where I wasn't just hungering and thirsting for your word. I pray you would cause my desire to grow for you, for your word that But the Lord, that even in those times where I don't feel it, where I don't have the goosebumps, Lord, that I would rest secure in what you have revealed about who you are and about your word. I pray that I'd be faithful. And Lord, I pray that as a pastor of this people, Lord, who that's my prayer for them as well. They would be drawn to your word, that we would be a people of the word who worships the God whose word this is who are transformed by the power of your spirit through the working of your word such that we would be a city on a hill pray God that you would be glorified in us and through us and that we would have joy to the full in you in Jesus name Amen